Praise the Lord. We'll transition to the preaching of God's word now. Uh, before we go any further, let's pray one more time specifically for this time. Heavenly Father, in this preaching moment, help us to be still and to listen to you speak to us. May your Holy Spirit convict us of our sin, lead us to repentance, and guide us through the process of, of reforming us according to your will. May Christ be glorified in our dependence upon him and by our desire to obey and honor you in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So today's sermon is from Ezra chapters 9 and 10 and is titled A Reformed Generation. There's a popular saying among Reformed Christians that goes something like this. The church is always reforming. Actually, the full quote is this. The church is reformed and always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. So to step back a bit, to be a reformed church simply means that it links itself to the tradition within Christianity that arose out of the historical event called the Reformation. To explain it very simply, although it's a complex story, the Reformation was a movement that protested the abuses and shortcomings of the Western church and was committed to going back to the original sources, the scriptures, to define the key points of their faith. It was a reforming of what we understood our Christian faith to be. HMCC is a reformed church in that we hold on to the truths that God's word alone is our authority and that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone for God's glory alone. And to always be reforming doesn't mean that each generation ha has to figure it all out again. Rather, it means that we always look backwards as in look, at, look into the original sources directly back into the, wor back into the word of God in order to properly move forward. And in this way, we are always being reformed. This, is, this was the calling of Ezra as well. He was saying to his generation of post-exiled Jews to look backwards at what God's word says in order to properly move forward as God's people now resettled into the promised land again. And this specific part of Ezra's book in chapters 9 and 10 was the process of bringing the people of Israel back to Yahweh to reform them by God's word, to be people who live by faith in the Lord's covenant by reconsecrating themselves and repenting of their sins to him. Here's the one thing from Ezra chapters 9 and 10, not just for Yahweh's post-exilic people, but also for us as the 21st century church. Be constantly reformed, living by faith in the Lord's covenant with us. I'll have four lessons from the four parts of my sermon on Ezra chapter 9 and 10. The four C's, to be constantly reformed, living by faith in the Lord's covenant with us. First, check the situation. Second, confess sins. Third, catalyze repentance. And fourth, commit to change. So we'll go through this long process of passage of scripture in pieces as we go through these four C's. So here's the first C. Uh, let's see Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Check the situation. In this first pass, part of the passage, Ezra received the reports that the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem and the province of Judah were not living wholly devoted to Yahweh. Here's the first lesson to be constantly reformed, living by faith in the Lord's covenant with us. Look carefully at your situations and what God's word says about it. 
We know that about four months had passed since Ezra first arrived in Jerusalem. This is according to chapter 10, verse 9. And during this time, he had to visit the governors of the various areas to deliver the work orders from Artaxerxes. And we saw that in the end of chapter 8. Now, Ezra got to focus his attention finally on the original reason why he came. So let's read. Uh, this is God's word, Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, and so that the, their the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. Amen. So the officials approached Ezra finally with direct reports about the batch of Jews who had resettled into the city of Jerusalem and the province of Judah 57 years before. What happened was they didn't separate themselves from the people groups that also lived there. And instead they took the daughters of these pagan people groups to be their wives. Now, don't think this was a racist thing that Jews were not allowed to marry people from other races. The issue was spiritual. The temptation to become unequally yoked together with people who are not worshipers of Yahweh always included their idolatry and immorality as well. A counterexample of, of, of this would be the famous case of Boaz marrying, uh, marrying Ruth, a Moabite woman, but Ruth had vowed to her mother-in-law your God will be my God. And she joined the covenant community and her marriage with Boaz was blessed. Furthermore, the, the words used here for wives in verse two is not the same word as the normal marriage covenant between one man and one woman that was taught in the law. It was actually something extra or looser, if you know what I mean. The officials also reported that the worst violators of this sin were the leaders of the people, the officials and the chief men of the people. The word that is used to describe this is faithlessness, which is repeated several times in chapters 9 and 10. It is a very strong expression for the abandonment of their faith and the rejection of their covenant with Yahweh yet again. So after maybe just maybe two generations, God's people had already virtually abandoned him and his covenant with them. And Ezra knew of this before. It was rumors of this that led him to pursue going to Jerusalem. You see, he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord so that, he, so that he knew what was at stake. He had been there four months and was probably also teaching God's law to his fellow Jews during that time. And as he heard this official report of the sins of his people, he was appalled and grieved over their sins. Tearing his clothes, pulling out the hair from his head and from his beard. And as Ezra and some of the people whom Ezra had taught God's law to also tremble with fear. And they gathered around Ezra. And this was the beginning of the Holy Spirit bringing about a, a reformation of the people's hearts. It started with Ezra checking the situation and seeing what God's words said about it. So let's look at this first lesson again. Look carefully at your situations and what God's word says about it. You know, people in the marketplace will identify the situations doing a SWOT analysis, looking at the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats for their organizations. And I think that we can broaden this to be the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats in all areas of our lives. 
in your family, with your parents or with your kids, in your marriage or dating relationship, in your work or office or business, in, uh, in our society as a whole, and definitely also in the church. I think this is what churches have, have had to do in light of heightened racial tensions like in the United States. And I think what is, what, what, this is what many churches have had to do in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, for you, what situations in your life come to mind that demand your attention now? Uh, it's really important to look at our situations and what God's word says about it. And most likely these situations did not just sprout up overnight. And most likely the solutions to them will be complicated and take time to sort out. Remember that Ezra took four months to really check his situation. The path he took to solve the problem also took months. So take time to assess your situation correctly. Examine your attitudes and behaviors that come out. Be in the scriptures to help guide your thinking from intentional study or just what the Lord brings across you in your daily readings. Identify possible areas of faith, faithlessness in yourself or in others and grieve, pray, and fast before the Lord over these things. You know, I've had to do this a lot of times and even this past week in specific conflicts that have arisen. We've had to do this throughout the pandemic, but specifically my family returned from the U.S. and we've experienced the, uh, and we'd experienced that Delta variant, second wave here in Indonesia. We had to check how our church members were doing, doing, and if they were connected with each other, how life groups were doing, how Sunday celebrations were going over Zoom. We had to think about it biblically. Are we committed to still meet together? Are we still making disciples who follow Christ? Are we equipping people to make more disciples? Um, this was our SWOT analysis, so to speak. So the first C was to check the situation. Second, let's see Ezra chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, confess our sins, confess sins. In the second part of the passage, Ezra responded to the situation by honestly and humbly praying, recalling Yahweh's grace and confessing the sins of the people of Israel. So here's the second lesson to be constantly reformed, living by faith in the Lord's covenant with us. Confess the sins of your own heart and of the church as the Bible instructs. Ezra's prayer of confession is a great biblical model for us. Let's read part of it here. This is God's word, Ezra chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from, the end, from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek the peace there's peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your, to your children forever. Amen. The first thing I observe here is that Ezra clearly understood the sin and guilt of his people among a lot here. But what's notable here is that Ezra says our iniquities and our guilt 
he did not just lay the blame on others and excuse himself. He didn't say their iniquities or their, their guilt. He identified personally with the sins of his people. He confessed to the Lord on behalf of his people, Israel. He wasn't judgmental, but he also did not ignore or take lightly their offenses before the Lord. And I think because he loved his people, he didn't condemn them and he didn't distance himself from them. The second thing that I observe here is that Ezra acknowledged that they were slaves. To, they were slaves still. They were not yet free from their captors. For a brief moment, Israel had experienced God's favor as, uh, as the exiles returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt their city and rebuilt their temple. The remnant did this. Yahweh had given light to their eyes and life in their souls, and they had done this, but it was temporary. But even though they had rebuilt the temple, Ezra knew that they were still slaves under Persian law. And even deeper in verse 10, Ezra acknowledged that they were also still slaves to sin. What he's referring to as God's commandments, that they couldn't help but forsake, what was specifically from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, they disobeyed the Lord's command to not intermarry with these other people groups. And what verse 12 says is also super important. These marriages with other people groups came from the heart desire of wanting their apparent, their apparent so-called peace and prosperity. That's God's people were led into the idolatry and immorality of their pagan neighbors because they desired in their hearts to gain peace and prosperity that their, that their neighbors had. Ezra didn't make any excuses for this. He didn't try to justify or minimize their evil deeds. They were slaves to sin, and they were in need of the king that Yahweh promised to send to deliver them and set them free. So let's look at the second lesson again. Confess the sins of your own heart and of the church as the Bible instructs. The idea of owning and confessing our corporate sin is kind of strange for us, isn't it? Uh, we tend to distance ourselves from others, from others' sins, like it's theirs, but not mine. It's their problem, but not mine. We tend to be judgmental and condemning towards the sins of others in our church, like they deserve what they get. And I'm glad I didn't do that. But the example of Ezra was that he confessed the sins of his people. And we also can own, uh, can we also own and confess the sins of our people, our church. Let me, let me share this quote to explain what I mean. Quote, this isn't murder on the Orient Express where we all individually wielded the knife. It more envisions a zeitgeist or atmosphere around wrongdoing, like how 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 describes the God of this age blinding minds of, to God's truth. It asks, asks us to think of ourselves as part of the sinning community, a nation, uh, a, a culture or institution and to confess accordingly, end quote. It's like with my kids. You know, I see their sins, but I, I'm 99% of the time, I don't judge them. I don't condemn them. No, I, I love them. Because I love them, it kills me to see their sin. And so I pray for them like it's my own sin. Corporate confession of sins of the sins of our church happens this way. When we think of ourselves as part of the sinning community in this way, we so love 
And we are so connected with that community that we can't help but try to take it up for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Second, and thus related, I want us to honestly think about how we actually do desire in our hearts to gain the peace and the prosperity in the world too. It doesn't cause us to bow down to physical idols, but we do bow down to the spiritual idols of our age too, don't we? It includes the gods of the age, idols of success, sex, significance, security, safety, and on and on. In that sense, we are also undoubtedly entangled in the gods of this age too. We must know that we are all slaves to sin and are in need of God's promised king to deliver us. So the first C was to check the situation. The second C was to confess sins. The third, let's see Ezra chapter 10 verses 1 through 5, catalyze repentance. In this third part of the passage, Ezra didn't force people to repent, but initiated it and moved those assembled to repent and make an oath to forsake their sin. Here's the third lesson to be constantly reformed, living by faith in the Lord's covenant with us. We can facilitate but not force each other towards repentance. Let's read what happened next as Ezra fasted and prayed in the temple. This is God's word from Ezra chapter 10 verses 1 through 4. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, a son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. End quote. Praise God. Verse 1 describes this move of the Holy Spirit. As Ezra confessed the sins of his people, some of the people of Judah joined him, men, women, and children, to also grieve over their sins and their people's sins. They agreed with Ezra's assessment of their great sin and faithlessness against God and gathered around him, I believe, to join him in confession and prayer. This is what we would call today the beginnings of a revival. Then in verses 2 through 4, God used this man, Shechaniah, not mentioned before ever and not ever mentioned again, to articulate their sin and the biblical solution. He reminded Ezra that there was still hope in spite of their grievous sin, Shechaniah said something like this, Ezra, let's make a covenant with Yahweh again. We will put away our foreign wives. Just align us back with the law of the Lord, Ezra. So maybe Shechaniah reminded Ezra that even though they had violated the law that was from Deuteronomy 7, chapters one, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Yahweh is also the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love for his people for a thousand generations, as it said in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. He knew that the primary purposes of the law, Ezra knew that the primary purposes of the law 
was not to measure their holiness. It was to reveal the infinite holiness of God and also to reveal the sinfulness of human beings. Shechaniah further reminded Ezra that he also already knew from the, uh, what he already knew from the word of God. They needed to depend on the mercy and grace of God. They needed to confess their sins and repent. That is, turn away from their sinful ways and turn back to the Lord. And Shechaniah encouraged Ezra to be strong and to carry out the task of catalyzing this repentance to all the people of Judah. Ezra's leadership here was exceptional, wasn't it? But what I want us to know wasn't just Ezra. It was the community around him. It was Shechaniah speaking into him. And together they facilitated this kind of repentance. You see, Ezra had been checking the situation and teaching the scriptures to Judah for the previous four months. He took ownership of his people's sins in, in his confession of sins. A critical mass of people gathered around him as they looked at his example, the Holy Spirit began to convict those people of their sins, and they began to confess their sins. You see, he didn't force them to repent. He facilitated this by, by his word ministry and by his example of corporate confession. Shechaniah helped Ezra to see the hope that they had in Yahweh's steadfast love. And now Ezra had to execute a plan for repentance and change for the people of Judah. So let's take a, a, a let's look at this third lesson again. We can facilitate, not force, each other towards repentance. Church, let's follow the example of Ezra, along with Shechaniah and the covenant community, of facilitating each other towards repentance. How often do we make the mistake of forcing people to do stuff that they are not convinced in their hearts to do? I have to admit that I've done this. Instead of just setting the table with the word of God and trusting that the Holy Spirit will do his work in leading his people towards repentance. I think this is really a key discipleship principle as well. We teach people to listen to the word. We teach people to listen to the Holy Spirit in leading them through confession and repentance. Here's what our word ministry can do to each other. Uh, here's what our word ministry can, to each other can do. As we study or discuss the scriptures, it points out our sin in our, and, our, or our, and our fallen condition. And what happens is that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, as John chapter 16, verse 8 says. The scriptures also point us to God who is gracious and his solution and points us to his solution for our sin problem, which is Jesus Christ. As we see that our sins are great and that we are slaves to sin, we also see that God's grace is greater and Christ the King, Christ is the King who delivers us from our sin. This is how the Apostle Paul describes God's deliverance in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of, our, of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ died on the cross as the substitute sacrifice for our sins in our foolishness, disobedience, in our wandering, 
in our slavery. He died for our personal sin and our corporate sin, for the sins of our actions and the sins of our hearts. This is what Christ, our King and Savior, Deliverer, has done for us. And you know, while God can use extraordinary means of grace, like revivals, to help people see their great sin and the great sacrifice of Christ, God most often uses what, what's called ordinary means of grace. This means the normal stuff that we do that puts us in a place to understand uh, the offense of our sin before a holy God and to also be blown away by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Christ-centered preaching and worship services, Bible studies and life groups, or baptism and communion. Through these means, God uses the church community, like you and me, to facilitate each other towards repentance. So the first C was to check the situation. The second C was to confess sins. The third C was to catalyze repentance. And fourth, let's see Ezra chapter 10, verses 6 through 44, commit to the process. In this final part of the passage, Ezra confronted the people regarding their sins, and they agreed to the long process of reconsecrating themselves under Yahweh's covenant. Here's the fourth lesson to be constantly reformed, living by faith in the Lord's covenant with us. The church commits itself collectively to this process of heart reformation. So Ezra followed up by issuing a proclamation. All returned exiles living in the province of Judah were to assemble at Jerusalem within the next three days. So essentially, he called everyone to, to, to make an emergency pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And if they didn't show up, they would face two punishments, forfeiture of their property and banishment from the congregation of the returned exiles. So here's what happened next. Uh, this is God's word in Ezra chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate them, separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the and from the foreign wives. Amen. So this was around December, which was the rainy season of Judah. And you can probably imagine what, what it was like, just monsoon rains, perhaps, and just them just sitting there, uh, sitting there nervous and, and worried. All the men of Judah and Benjamin, those were the only two tribes that formally composed the, the former southern kingdom. They assembled. They were trembling because they understood this matter of their sin before Yahweh, because also it was raining heavily. It was a dramatic scene. But they still gathered in the open square in the temple, sitting and waiting for God, for Ezra's words. In verses 10 and 11, Ezra presented the charges that they had broken faith, that, that, that faithlessness again, and they married foreign women. He told them that they had a decision to make, to confess their sins to Yahweh and to take steps consistent with repentance, namely to separate from their foreign wives and from their unequal yoking with their neighboring people groups. In verses 12 through 17, the people admitted their sin 
by God's grace and proposed a plan to root out, root this out systematically. It was a great transgression and needed time to address the heart issues and to make the proper changes in people's lives. Remember the word that was used for marriage here was not the proper covenant of marriage presented in the law, but it was something improper and immoral. Thus, this example didn't promote divorce, but instead the ending of improper and immoral relationships. The thing to really notice is that to do this right, it took some thought and also took a lot of time to make happen. And so lastly, in verses 16 through 44, the specific list of people sorted from among the priests, the Levites, and 11 other families of Judah were, who were found guilty of intermarriage were listed specifically by name. You know, just as it was important that the individuals and families that returned to Jerusalem were listed specifically, it was also important that those individuals and families that had sinned were held to account here specifically as well. Corporate sin and personal sin were accounted for. It took the people, took the people of Judah a total of three months to finish this, but by God's grace, they did it. And that generation of God's people experienced a profound reformation that was started, that was started by that's, that was started by bringing back by bringing them back to the word of God, led to confession of sins and appealing to the covenant love of God by faith and taking steps of change, real change and real obedience to the Lord. And praise the Lord for this. Amen. So let's take a look at this final lesson again. The church commits itself collectively to this process of heart reformation. So we check our situations and what, what the word of God says about it. We confess both the sins of our own hearts and the church. We own the sin and we, we own the sin we see in ourselves and in the congregation. We facilitate, not force, each other towards repentance through the ministry of the word and the Holy Spirit. The word and the spirit by God's grace convicts us and points us to Christ Jesus, our king and our deliverer from our sins. And the whole idea of a church, the collection of sinners saved by the grace of God, is that we commit ourselves collectively to this process of heart reformation. We commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus because we know he wants us to be more and more wholly devoted to him. We commit ourselves to our brothers and sisters in Christ because we know he wants us all to be more and more wholly devoted to him. Think about those things that anger you frustrate you, hurt you, or disappoint you from people in the church or from the church as a whole. There's probably a lot of things. Think about those flaws or sins in individuals or in the church as a whole that you tend to look down on or compare yourself to or even judge. Be honest here. Those things negatively affect you and others sometimes, right? Let's not minimize the sins. These are offenses against a holy and righteous God. These are acts of faithlessness against God who has dealt with us with patience and love. Let's bring them to Christ in our prayers, asking God to help us see and love them as fellow brothers and sisters and to see our own sins of our, to see our own sins of the heart. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin and to lead them into repentance. And when we have the opportunity, let's encourage correct, support, and walk with people 
through the process of heart reformation. Now, this seems like a really lofty goal, but with Christ as our head, with Christ as our leader, it is possible. Amen. And I really see this as also a way that we can minister to others in our lives as well. As a church, we can apply this also, this kind of commitment to people in our families or work or even in broader society. There's a great need in our world, in our homes, workplaces, and city for a biblical understanding of our sin and God's holiness. There's a great need in our world for our prayers heartfelt confession and intercession. God will give us opportunities to correct, encourage, support, and walk through with people in our lives through the process of heart reformation that is found in Christ. May God use us in those ways. So first, check the situation. Second, confess sins. Third, catalyze repentance. And fourth, commit to the process. Let's move on to the life application. Here's the next step that we can take to be constantly reformed, living by faith in the Lord's covenant with us. It's just a question for us to think about. How can you immerse yourself into the process of being constantly reformed by God's word? Checking the situation, confessing sins, catalyzing repentance, and committing to the process. Let me just tell you that it's not just a simple four-step process that you plug into and expect to see automatic results. This is living by faith in the covenant relationship that we have with God, trusting in the, in the Father's everlasting love and grace, trusting in the Son's redeeming and restoring work on the cross, trusting in the Spirit's guidance and leadership through the cycles of this in our lives, and not just for us, but for our church and for others in, in our lives. Amen. Let's take a few moments to collect our thoughts and pray on our own at this time. And before we go into breakout rooms and, and minister to one another, I want us to have a few moments to do this. Let's go ahead and pray.